Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. So what I'm about to share with you is 15 years of selling experience collated into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven vital elements of making a sale. I wouldn't be surprised if there's more than a billion pounds or dollars worth of sales experience gone into this. There's mine that is in excess of 100 million. There's mentors that I've had. There's amazing copywriters, stage sellers, and you know the best um, salesmen and women I've studied over the last 15 years. Because of the lockdown, and in some areas it being harder, quotation marks, harder to sell, different to sell really, but harder as in not how we might normally have done it. Um, I've been doing a lot more research to collate together what I think makes what I'm going to call your compelling offer. So you could say that the title of this is how to create a compelling offer. So the first thing is you must have a new opportunity. People don't want to buy stuff they could have bought a year or two ago or that everyone does or that is the same old or is bland or vanilla. Now, I'm not saying you won't sell without all of these. I'm just saying these elements will increase your sales. Now, I've done a lot of research on the word opportunity because you see the word opportunity quite a lot with schemes and scams. But I've also tested the word opportunity in open rates on emails and I've written a book called Opportunity. And the word opportunity gets brilliant open rates on emails and is a word that is attractive to people as well as involved with some schemes and scams. Obviously, some schemes and scams, you've got to take your hat off to them. They're bloody good at selling and marketing. So if you can just take the best parts and make sure you have a really good ethical product or service, then you win. Now, some people say to me, well, Rob, what if I don't have a new product or opportunity? Well, then your mission is to make it look new or to market what's new about it. Because there is, I mean, Nike have been having trainers since what, the 70s? I don't know when Nike formed. So what do they do every year or two or three or every month or two or three? They're reinventing a shoe. Apple are reinventing a phone. Audemars Piguet make the Royal Oak, the Royal Oak Offshore. And they've got 200 novelties of the same watch in the same shape, just in different materials, in different limited runs. So they are creating newness and opportunity out of existing models, mechanisms and processes. And what you will find is... You will get buyer's fatigue if your product or service becomes normal and you will get an increase in sales or reach or impact or interest if you essentially repackage your offer. It's the same with everything. Facebook ads. Um, You need to refresh your ads quite uh, quite regularly because your ads get fatigue. I've seen that scroll on. And what this ultimately is, is called a pattern interrupt. Now, I think we'd all agree right now with social media and the pervasive nature of it, how everyone's on it. We are fighting for attention. The game is attention. And if people scroll past your ads or your lives, or if your product or service doesn't come up in search, or someone else is on the TV or the radio or on a podcast and you're not, they're getting the attention, they're winning the game. And creating something new and a bit of noise around it 
is a great way to spike the sales, the interest, the viral nature of it. I mean, car manufacturers do it all the time. They use the same platform. Like Porsche, for example, there's the Panamera, the Panamera 4, the Panamera S, the Panamera 4S, the Panamera Turbo. I think there's the GTS, there's the Turbo S. And they release them at different stages. If they release them all at the market at the same time, they don't get to essentially repackage it, new repackage it, new repackage it, new repackage it, new. But it's the same basic platform. If you get tired and bored of your own products or services, you know your market will. And the only limitation to this in your product service industry market is your own creativity and innovation. And if you see your results diminish, you've just got to get into a creative mindset and go, I've got to sex this up. I've got to make this new. I've got to make this different. Which leads me to point two uniqueness. Your product or service, your launch must be unique and completely different from two things. One, anything the market's done and two, anything you've done. People don't want to buy the same as everything else. They can get everything else everywhere else. But if you have something that no one else does, then you win the game. If you're doing something the market has never seen and you're doing something your customers have never seen because you've never done anything like this before, you're winning the game. There's two areas we've got to look at when we're talking about this compelling offer. One is the product itself and one is the marketing of the product itself. Because you could have a product that is really just a very small, minor iteration of the last version. But you can make it sound completely different with good, compelling marketing. I mean, let's be honest, the new iPhones are never really that much different, but we all kind of seem to want one. I'll tell you where I think this was genius. Um, do you remember back in the days with MP3 players? Uh, just for the note on audio, I am actually talking to people in a live room. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the days of MP3 players? Yes. God, kill me now. Um, do you remember when you, had, you put it on to load your songs and it took about 20 minutes a song to download? Do you remember when you could fit seven songs on the MP3 player? I'm sure if you're um, 40 years old or over, that's why no one's saying anything. They don't want to admit their age. Right. And then what did Apple come along and do? They, they had the iPod. Now, the iPod, it was different, but it wasn't. It was an MP3 player. So it was the same as everything else. But they came up with 10,000 songs in your pocket. And that was unique and that was new and that was wildly different. And that was probably the amazing success of the iPod at that time. And that is an idea. Great. So anything that only you can offer, only you do offer, you've never offered before or the market's never offered before. And it's completely unique, either in the reality of the product or the marketing of it. And you're going to sell a lot more. Okay, so the third thing in the construction of your compelling offer, um, I like to call it sexy benefits. Copywriters from, you know, the good old days call it W-I-F-M. What's in it for me? I'm sure you know the difference between benefits and features. Benefits is 10,000 songs in your pocket. Features is how big the hard drive is. So really, it's the benefits that are sexier. So this includes how it works, by the way. If you've got something quite technical, if you've got something that needs a bit of explanation, how it works, you'll need to cover. So you might need to have some features and benefits. But those benefits have got to be sexy. You're selling the result. You're selling the outcome. You're selling the lifestyle. People don't buy property for bricks and mortar. People buy property for freedom and choice. For security. Cool. Fourth thing. You have to overcome what's stopping them. So this now links to some of the questions you asked me to cover in the mastermind later. Those of you that asked about sales objections, etc. Uh, Jane, you did as you, you were one of them, weren't you? So 
You have to overcome what's stopping them. Now, if you're smart in selling, you'll know that already. And if you don't know that by the time you address that later in the sales process, then essentially you're getting into a debate and you'll very rarely win a debate against a client. Your client is holding on to their resistances and excuses and objections and you're trying to debate them out of it. That is not the position you want to be in with your client. I mean, look, if you're there, you're there and you've got to do your best. So actually, the objections should be addressed up front. Now, I'm going to recommend a book for you. There's loads of great sales books out there. And of course, there's some average vanilla ones as well. But what I love about this book is they completely reverse the traditional sales process because the traditional old sales process was overcoming objections at the end. And this was the first um, study I ever did where they got rid of the objections up front. So like they wouldn't even talk to you unless they knew you had the money, they knew you had the time and they knew you were ready. And it's called the Sandler Rules. S-A-N-D-L-E-R. The Sandler Rules. I mean, there's a lot more to it than just a reversed sales process. I'll give you an example of a script they give you in the book. Um, Hi, it's Rob. And yeah, I'm a um, I'm a cold caller. So if you're not interested in what I've got, just tell me now and I'll leave you alone. But I've got something really exciting. If you are interested, stay with me. And they immediately overcome the objection of it being a cold caller. And if you think about it, that saves the time because it gives people the license to hang up. But if people stay, they've now committed to listening. Um, So I've had conversations with Sandler salespeople before. One of the best ways to really learn selling is to be sold to by someone who's good at selling. But like, so if you ever get cold called, go with it. Because if they're good, you're like, well, you should hire them if they're good. <laughs> what is it Steve Jobs said to the, the, the um, was it the CEO of Pepsi? Do you want to sell brown water your whole life? Or do you want to come and do something meaningful? Um, if you get cold called, take the call and see if they're good. Um, I've been analysing and trying to create an ideal recruitment process for tele salespeople. So, um, yeah, we've got 90 odd staff in the office when all are out of furlough. Um, but we've got an in-house sales team and that creates a certain culture. A tele sales team, if you get the right people, is a different culture, probably in reality, a little bit more hungry, maybe. Certainly, um, if you can get them on commission only. Um, and I've been trying to figure out the best process end to end from job ad and where to market to find these people to hiring them. And um, I read a book by Chet Holmes and I just thought this was a little bit of genius, but it's so obvious. He says it's easy to work out good salespeople. You phone them up, you get them to sell you something and you immediately reject them and you see what they do. Because if they're like, uh, 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 you just, sorry, you're not good enough. But if they take the rejection really well, and try and handle it, then they can take rejection. And the biggest issue with salespeople is often that they don't like receiving rejection. So you're giving them an early live opportunity to prove that they've got the skills. So these objections you need to overcome early in your sales process. So you overcome them in the sales letter, you overcome them early in in the, the journey that they have with you. So, for example, when people want to join Inner Circle Mastermind Elite, I get quite a lot of applications for that. I will not have a phone call with them until I know how much, not just that they've got money, but I want to know how much liquid they've got. I want them to have filled in an application form and then I want a full CV sent. And if they can't, if they don't tell me how much money they've got, they can't fill an application form properly and they can't send me a full CV. They're not serious about being in a high level mastermind program, but I probably close somewhere between four out of five and nine out of 10. So eight, eight and a half out of 10 people because they're already qualified. I don't really have to do anything. I just have to talk to them about the the features and benefits of it and just kind of dot the I's and cross the T's because the the qualification process. um, And uh, um, when someone applies online to come on ICM Elite, a form comes through. Then I send it to my VA. Then my VA sends them a video. Then they've got a send in the CV. And so there's just a few things that are overcoming objections along the way. The last thing you want to do is to talk to someone on the phone um, who hasn't got the money to buy a product. 
Okay, great. So, I mean, in reality, what's stopping them is individual to them. And you have to find that out. This is why it's good to have an ideal client profile, because if you have an ideal client profile, you know it's because they're you know, a busy mum with two kids, or you know it's because they're a professional CEO and they're working 85 hours a week, or you know it's because they've got limited access to funds because they got, just got made redundant or whatever. And so you can generically, en masse, overcome the main objections. Okay, so that's one, two, three, four. Okay, number five then is proof. How do I know it's real? And will it work for me? How do I know it's real? And will it work for me? So much to the dismay of good salespeople, um, you are not your best salesperson. Your best salesperson are your client case studies and testimonials. Because any sceptical client or even a fairly trusting client is going to go, well, you would say that because you want five grand out of me. But a third person, a third party, doesn't have the same ulterior motive. Now, let me tell you something about the kind of case studies that work really well, just so you know. You want to write this down because this is quite specific. The first one is the case studies need to have results. If they just say, yeah, I went on the course, it was really good and I like Rob's shirt which of course they clearly never say from that reaction. If they just like you, that's not good enough. People don't do your product, your program, your course to like you. They do it to get a result. So if they said, yeah, I went on Rob's property course and I found him a bit in your face and ranty and you know, he got on my back for the first three months, but now I've bought 12 properties with other people's money and I quit my job last week. That's a good case study because it's a result. That's the first element. The next element is they have to be relatable to your ideal client. If your ideal client is a 21-year-old woman and your case studies are all 65-year-old men, well, I was going to say that probably wouldn't work, but maybe it would for some. <laughs> maybe we should edit that bit out of the podcast. Um, but if your case studies are nothing like the kind of person that your ideal client profile is, they're not going to relate to it. People relate to people like them. So if you've got a bigger business and you've got lots of clients, you need to have young, old, you need to have a cosmopolitan range of client case studies. Generally, companies who are run by young men, all their case studies are young men. You need to be diverse in your case studies. It's really important. So that's the, the next element. The next element is... If someone has overcome serious hardship and got a result out of your product or service, that's a massive win. You know, if they were, Paul O'Mahony does a, a case study um, for his social media course of kids who are 11 and 12. And of course, that makes it, it makes you feel like, well, like, surely I can do that if an 11 or a 12 year old can do it. If someone's had a really hard life and they had real difficulty, they're in a lot of debt, they had a lot of trauma, but they still came through and your product delivered for them. And what this is, is transformation. And what you ideally want is a significant transformation. But it has to be believable. So believable, significant transformation. Now, for those of you that are in an industry where quite a lot of people sell an unrealistic result. You know, get rich quick, get fit quick, shred 50 pounds in a week, you know, all that. If you're in those kind of industries where there's some racy claims, you have to be careful with racy claims. But what you can sell is the transformation because you, you can't guarantee results. You can guarantee transformation. Hi, it's Rob here, interrupting you with something you may not know about me. I was one of the few people on the planet hand-selected by Facebook to pilot their new supporter program. It's a very small premium model where you can get exclusive content and advance notice or discount of new products and services. So this is what I've done for you. Not only can you get best discounts, 
for any training that we might run. Not only do you get notified first of any launches we do, we also do supporter meetups, supporter dinners, supporter WhatsApp groups where you have a, a deeper community. I do supporter only ask me anything. I do supporter only content and podcasts. We have a community of 2,500 supporters and I'd love to give you the chance to be one of those. I believe this is the best supporter program in the whole world. Find me a better one, but I don't think you will. So the link is bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. That's bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. I believe the gap between free content and paid content is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a lot of free content out there that's maybe not that good. And for just a few dollars a month, you can get the best content on business, on entrepreneurship, on starting up, on scaling up, on sales, on marketing, on the mindset of being an entrepreneur. So go to bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R right now. The best model I've seen for case studies is then, now, how, action. Then, now, how, action. So then, before I met Rob, I was so skint, I used to pick fag butts up off the floor and go down KFC and lick people's fingers for food. But going on Rob's course has transformed my life. And now I'm a multimillionaire thanks to his proven seven-step property investing system. Something like that. So the then is the, the, then is the low point. The now is where you are now. This, this how is important. If you're selling something, the how from the case study needs to be what they bought from you. If they're how they said, I sweat blood for 15 years. I worked so hard on my own, I was bleeding out of my eyeballs. They're not giving me the credit. They need to give me the credit. Otherwise, well, it clearly wasn't the course that gave you the transformation. It was your work ethic. So how they know it's real is Proof through case studies. You could prove, prove through bank statements, completion statements. This is really important in any sales environment. Any sales environment is vital and it will transform your result. Whenever you make any kind of claim, immediately back it up with proof. So if anything comes out of your mouth that is some kind of claim where someone could, you know, imagine you're the skeptic and someone makes a claim, prove it, prove it, prove it. And if you make a claim, prove it, make a claim, prove it. Make a claim, prove it. In the end, you condition believability. But a lot of people make claims, but don't back it up with proof. So in a sales letter, a good one, you'll see a claim and then you'll see a screenshot proof. So it's just a little bit more of credible proof. And this one, will it work for me? Because people say, yeah, but uh, I'm really busy. Yeah, but I've got three kids. Yeah, but I haven't got any money. Yeah, but my area doesn't work. So if anyone can say, yeah, but you haven't overcome their specific objection. Okay, next then is making them feel that it's not their fault that they are where they are. They just didn't have the help, the support, the guidance, the mentorship or the education that they required. It's not your fault. You just didn't know what you didn't know. So if it's the government's fault, HMRC's fault, their previous employer's fault, that's actually a good thing because they don't blame and beat themselves up. They just didn't have the right opportunity. And of course, now they do because you're presenting it to them. Right. This next one is absolutely vital. Why now? This can all be hunky-dory, but if they wait, they're never going to do it. So um, the elements of why now might be scarcity, urgency, which are different but similar, um, FOMO, fear of missing out. It might be a, a wormhole or a very limited window of opportunity. 
It may only work now. It may not even work later. Okay, next. Why you? Why should they choose you over the competition? Oh, six minutes until my coffee. Oh, man. Yeah, 6 a.m., which is like really in reality last year. (laughs) So I think the three things that are the most important elements of why you. Because what I'm trying, I mean, I'm giving you 11 points here. So there is the possibility that this can become overwhelming for you. So I don't want it to be. So I'm trying to break it down into the main elements. So why you? I would say three things. Trust, proof, and that you care. I mean, there's other stuff, likability, humor. There's lots of other things, but I mean... I think you'll sell more if people trust you over like you than like you over trust you. And I think people don't, you know, the famous saying, they don't care what you know till they know that you care. I think that's vital. And of course, proof, proof of what, what the claims you make. Now, by the way, if you want to sell really well, make big claims and then back them up with fact. If you've got fact, don't be scared to make a claim. I actually have issues with this because there's so many things I've done I never talk about. Because I don't want people to think I'm really braggy. I mean, I do enough of a job of attracting lots of critics and trolls and haters. And of course, I have to tell you the stuff I've done. Otherwise, you're just going to go with someone else. But still inside, I don't want to sound like I'm too braggy. And so I actually went to my, one of my mentors, John Demartini, on this. And he said, Rob, um, it's not a brag if it's a fact. And that's all he said. And that was all I needed. It's not a brag if it's a fact. So if I've broken a world record for public speaking, it's not a brag. It's a fact. If Mark and I own, co-own and manage 850 properties, it's not a brag, it's a fact. It's only a brag if it's not true. And that really helped me. And I'll even say, because that helped me as well, look, this is not a brag, it's just a fact. So you can even say that. Cool. Uh, Right. Um, Next then, and by the way, I've tried to put this in, in the right order. So where I've studied this all and around, by the way, I've, I've sold tens of millions of pounds on the stage using these models and, of course, on all of our launches. So I've got my own experience, um, but also I've studied a lot of people and they, they put it in different orders. I don't even know that they put it in an order. I've tried to put it in the right order. But if I was to create a visual model, which I might do one time, there'd be some things that you kind of need to weave through, like scarcity and urgency. They don't come last. They're always inherent within the points, but I'm going to tell you them last. So maybe I'll develop this as a model for you later on down the line on on Brand and Marketing Mastermind. Okay, next then is how do I do it? It's all very well telling them all all that, but if they don't know the next step, do they apply? Do they sign up? Do they click a link? Do they pay now? Do they go see someone? Do they talk to someone on the phone? Like The biggest barrier I'm having with the supporters program and the stars is none of the stuff I've just told you. It's like, how how do I get stars? Oh, they don't talk like that. I'm sorry. That's really bad, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> honestly, that, that, that's actually me talking about me. It's not me talking about anyone else. Um, sorry? Some people do talk like that. I just talk like that to myself in my head. If I do something stupid, I'm like, hey, man, I'm not the idiot. Um, <laughs> but if they don't know how to donate stars, they can't take you up on all your offers. If they don't know where to sign up to the support program, they can't do it. So half of my job is telling them how to do it. But Facebook don't make it that easy. Mark, Zuck, listen up. All right. So um, how do they get started? How do they take action? And what are the next steps? How do they get started? How do they take action? What are the next steps? Have you ever seen someone sailing from the stage and they say, go to the back of the room? I mean, it sounds so obvious, but if you don't say go to the back of the room, they don't know where to go. And they just sit there waiting, nodding. Yes, this is great. Go to the back of the room. Oh, okay. Pew. All right. All right. Penultimately then is what ifs, the what ifs. So this is the, um, the overcoming the skeptics. Where have I put my phone? Oh. <laughs> oh no. Where have I put my phone? Imagine if I was live. I'd have no followers left. They'd all fucking unfollow me. 
Jesus. We've all suffered in this lockdown. <laughs> we have all struggled. We are all in this together. Fuck's sake. Right. Um, W-H-Y-G-T-L, and I've forgotten what it is. W-H-Y-G-T-L. What have, what have you? Yes, that's it. What have you got to lose? Yeah. You want them to say, ah, oh, fuck it, what have I got to lose? I'm in. So anything that a sceptic might hold on to, you want to get rid of, and you ha want to have them have that feeling of what have I got to lose? You've probably heard these things said before, but I'll just say them again to remind you. Sales is energy. And you need to get people in an emotional change, an emotional state. They need an emotional change to make a decision. I think we all are in a different emotional space when and when we have made a decision. It's movement. It's energy. Okay, and then the final one, which is not in this order because um, it, it needs to be pervasive through them all, is scarcity, urgency and fear of missing out. So if they think, oh, well, I can just wait and get this anytime, they're never going to do it now. If there's no competition against other people or um, punishment for delaying it, essentially, you need to punish them for delaying it. This is why um, DFS have been having a sale since 1931. Uh, you know, and all these closing down sales that have been going on forever. So different forms of scarcity and urgency could be last one ever, could be limited places, could be price rises coming. Cool. So there we have the structure of a compelling offer for a product, a service, something you sell online face-to-face, one-to-one, one-to-many. Let me just summarize it. You have um, a new opportunity. You have something that's unique and is different from anything the market has ever done or you have ever done the sexy benefits and what it's, what's in it for me and how it works, they're all one thing. And remember, the more bespoke you make them to an ideal client, the better, because we all have different objections. Next, you have to overcome what's stopping them. Then you show them proof. How do I know it's real and how do I know it will work for me? The next one is you have to make them feel that it's not their fault. They shouldn't be beating themselves up. You need them in a positive um, emotional and energetic state to move forward. The blame goes on to someone else. Why should they do it now? Probably one of the most vital parts. Because if they don't do it now, they won't do it later. You'll just get lucky if they do. Uh, why you? And I think trust, proof, and that you care are the three main elements. How do they do it? Like the logistics of getting started, the next steps. The what-ifs, overcoming those final sceptical objections and getting them into a state of, uh, what have you got to lose? Now, by the way, in what have you got to lose, you can do risk reversal or risk reduction. Risk reduction is come on the first day of the two-day course, and if you don't like it, at the end, we'll give you your money back. Risk reversal is we'll give you one year's guarantee. And if you fail to get results from the course to the value of two times the course, all the way up to one year after the course, you could claim money back on the course, as long as you prove the actions that you've taken. That would be a risk reversal. Like you're taking the risk. Risk reduction, they're taking some risk, but less. Risk reversal, you're taking all the risk. If you have a risk reversal, make sure you have clear terms and conditions on what they've got to do to claim that um, refund. Because what a lot of people do is just try and game you, and that's not fair. Well, there's, I mean, there's the seven and the 14 days, which is common for um, you know, returns or, or, or money back, um, distance selling uh, regulations. Um, the longer you do it, the more you reduce the risk. What I found is a year is better than a month because often they forget because it's so long um, and you give them more time to implement the results. But um, we have a very clear checkbox process that we've written and we give to them of what they need to implement and prove they've implemented in order to qualify for the refund. And they have to prove that. And that's part of our terms conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, how do we know that they've done it properly? And, and of course, you, you, want to, you want to be clear to your clients so they know what they've got to do. Because actually, that is not just a disclaimer for you for refunds. It's actually a more clear process for your client to implement and get results. So it's a, a, a double win. Yeah. Well, what you find is 
the bigger your risk reduction or reversal, the more sales you get and the more refunds you get. But you've just got to work out more sales versus refunds. But I, I know for a... I was going to say I know for a fact. There's, there's too many variables to say I know for a fact. But I know for almost a fact that some of our newer courses where they don't have the social proof and they don't have the risk reversal, it's much harder to sell than ones we've been doing for five or 10 years. By the way, one method of risk reversal is so many people have got results out of it, you can't fail. It's not even in a refund guarantee, but it's just it's undeniable proof. Can you just repeat both those again? So um, risk reversal. They're both money back. Yeah. But the risk reduction is you reduce the risk, but you don't take it away completely. The risk reversal is you take all the risk. This course, this course had a risk reversal money back guarantee. Basically, it would be um, if you don't get X result based on the training or the product, we will give you all your money back in Y timeframe. If it was a product, you could say, and you keep the product. It depends, of course, if you can afford that. So, you know, if you think about online selling, I, I, don't, I don't know what the data is, but there's no doubt that online retailers, sell, sellers, sell way more because you can return the items. Cool. And then the final one was scarcity, urgency, and formal fear of missing out. So does anyone have any questions on the compelling offer? Yes, Jane. Uh, I just wanted to, for you to give us an example if possible of the risk reduction, because I don't quite get that. I get the risk reversal, but how would you use a risk reduction? Okay, so a risk reduction would be, let's say you've got a three-day course. You can let them come for the first day. And then if they're not happy with it, they can get a refund at the end of the first day. Yeah. Or it could be you can return your item, but you pay the postage. Anyone else got any questions? Yes. Best ways to get testimonials and case studies. Because oh. Some of the best selling I've seen have been people doing live stories with their success. Yeah. Okay, so best way to get uh, coffee. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Yeah, best way to get case studies and testimonials. Um, well, what you shouldn't do, which is what most people do, is wait until people send them to you. Because you will get them, but you might get 1%, 5%, 0.1% of reviews on Amazon or Trustpilot or people messaging you saying, you know, wow, I love your products and your services. So what you do is you consistently reach out to customers and community members. Uh, you find out how they're getting on, um, if they've got good value from your products and services, and then you ask them to write or record a testimonial, and then you coach them on it if it's not what you want. That's what you do. Now, by the way, that's, I think that's ethical because if the result is consistent, how they say it doesn't really matter. But some people will give you a testimonial, but it won't have the result in it or it'll be too wordy or um, they just won't stress the right points. So just go back to them and say, look, thanks for that. That's great. Would you mind just doing it again, doing it like this? Could you put more focus on this? How long? For a, say, say depends on how long. It uh, depends on the pl platform and the vehicle. If you're running a three or a four day course, and you're selling into a mastermind or a suite of courses, they could do a 15, 20 minute case study. Um, if you're doing online video and sales page and stuff, I would say they want to be a minute or under and anywhere in between, depending on the, the, the value of the product or the service. Because the, the higher value the product or service, the more compelling and detailed the, the case study and the testimonial needs to be. So can I just say what I do when I do the training? So I would do um, a three to five minute um, video of them, how they found the training, what they got out of it, that type of thing. Um, yeah, and where do you pu publish that? That goes onto our website and um, YouTube. And I think yeah, all right. So for YouTube, it's fine because yeah. YouTube want longer form of content. For your website, it's too long, I would what, say. What, yeah. yeah, you can you can do an edited down version or get them to do a minute version. 
Right. And then well, I do, um, I've started to do lives with people that have a year on yeah. from the training. Great. Where they're at now. Now that goes on for about 45 minutes, could even go longer. Should I make that smaller? It depends on what it's for. Um, I'll come to that in one moment. So let's go back to the question. This is the next thing I was going to say. If, you re- if you've got a course of product or service, you know, that takes a few days, weeks or months to really show the result, getting the testimonial from them straight away, you're not going to get the best outcome. So this is exactly what you do. You go to them a year after, two years, you diarize it. You, all your clients, you diarize following up for them, six months, a year, two years. And what you do is you go in with a, a customer service-based call. How are you getting on? Are you doing all right? Can I help with anything? So that's a really good lead in. They'll feel like you care for them and you don't just want them for a case study. You can actually fix some of your business problems because they'll give you feedback if they're not happy. And then you'll pull out the ones that are getting good results. Now, if you have an online community like we do, Facebook groups and everything else, um, when people post them, then you want to private message them and draw out a really good testimonial um, because people like to publicize case studies live. Um, So if I were doing more of an interview base um, where it was content, 45 minutes, an hour, especially on YouTube could be good or or a Facebook live. But if I'm using it in marketing material, it's just far too long. You can't use an hour in marketing material. So what would I do with that then when they tell their story of why they started it? You could edit it down into under a minute or two and just get the results-based bits. Or you could tighten up your questions um, and tighten up your interview process to get it a bit more slick. Okay, so is there any place for that one that's long? So- um, YouTube content, so doing Facebook minutes. Lives. So that's okay for Facebook. They like the long ones, do they? Um, it depends. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not being... I'm not being you know, I'm not being flippant to say it depends. You know, it's because it's the correct answer. All answers are context dependent. So with Facebook Lives, the longer they go on, the more people you will have had watch the live. But often the less people will watch it after the live because it's a big chunk of commitment. They're scrolling. It's like fucking hell, hour and a half. No, thanks. Scroll. Whereas the longer you are live, obviously, the more people you're going to capture because, you know, let's say you go live and I log in in 30 minutes and you're still live and I see you live. So it depends. If I'm doing an offer, I'll probably go live for longer. But if I'm doing content that I want to have a long burn, you know, that I want people to watch in a year, I probably won't go much beyond 30 minutes. But this is for Facebook lives. Facebook pre-records way shorter, like three minutes, two, three, three minutes, something like that. Um, YouTube, I'm told they want to get you up near that 10 minute view. So over 10 minutes is good for YouTube. Anything under that, probably not good for YouTube. And of, of course, there are exceptions to all these rules. But, you know, generally speaking, yeah. I mean, obviously, some platforms you're limited. So a, a reel is 16 seconds, I think. Um, a, a story on some platforms is 20 seconds. Instagram, probably a minute to two minutes. LinkedIn videos, long one that you can do up to 10 minutes on LinkedIn, but they never, they're, they're shit. Two, three minutes on LinkedIn, just from all my testing and, you know, what I've studied and discovered. If you do, if you do your lives and then you find that actually it's, it's really taking time to get people to hop on, to comment, to get that interaction. Do you still, do you get deranked by Facebook for that? that you're, even if you, even if you perhaps are giving good content, but it's just... Not just not happening for you. I don't know how you get ranked or deranked within Facebook exactly. Otherwise, I'd be able to game the system and they're never going to tell you that. Even my Facebook ad account managers, we've got account managers for ads now, which took us spending like 10 million quid before we got it. Um, 3 million quid a year. Uh, stars, supporters, Facebook live events, and then one for my page. But they'll never tell you stuff like that because they just can't have anyone knowing the algorithm. What I can tell you is the following will derank your page because they told me this. Um, And that is obviously if you link away, that is going to reduce your reach. So I'm not saying you shouldn't link away because if you're selling a product or service in a launch, you want to link. But you just got a time when you do that and do that fairly sparingly. Um, The next thing is... um, if what they deem as spam from you, not from spammers. So if you just reply to everyone going, yes, yes, thanks, yes, or you copy and paste a lot of comments, 
they're going to reduce your reach for sure. They want meaningful engagement. That is their phrase. And yeah, about about seven words or more and ask them a question. See, you would have seen my replies evolve because I reply to pretty much everyone. Um, And you'd have seen them evolve from thank you and little emojis. And now I'll write something. I'll go, how's business? Or I'll put some, a question at the end. So then they come back. That's what Facebook wants. Facebook wants users coming back. All the social media platforms want you coming back. The more time you are online on their platforms, obviously the more ad revenue they're going to generate. That's what they want. So anything that you do that gets users coming back. Obviously, you've got to be careful with your headlines of trigger words um, so that don't get through you know, spam filters. So if you put a swear word, that will reduce your reach. Fuckers. Um, and I think if it's a bit too racy about like in the crypto space and in the money making space, you've got to be a bit careful. Um, but you can do some research online and work out what those trigger words are. Yeah. Um, I think really, let's now let's flip that question on its head. What can you do to increase engagement? Because I tell you what, there's always some weird anomalies going on. Like sometimes I'll go live and there'll be instantly quite a lot of people. And then sometimes I'll go live and I'll be 30 seconds in and I'm, there's no one still. And there are other times I go live and it just creeps up almost really regularly and sometimes it jumps up. So um, you do get some anomalies. I think your internet connection is really important and sometimes we don't think about that. But if you've got a bit of a glitchy internet connection on a Facebook live feed, that's not going to come across well to your users. So you want a really good internet connection. The next thing, which seems to make a massive difference is the background. Um, and if you, if you pattern interrupt and have different backgrounds, yeah, so if you're, when, whenever you're on holiday, you always get way more engagement, way more. Um, if you just vary that background. What do you think to the green screens? You could try it. I've never tried a green screen on a live. Well, I think they look lovely, but then you can, look, you can almost see that. Yeah, I've never tried it. Yeah. So I'd just try it. Uh, I mean, different things will work for different people. I'm telling you what's worked for me yeah. and what I know works for other people like me. The headline is absolutely vital. You need a good, compelling, sexy, hooky headline. Uh, yeah. Seven words. Um, not necessarily. Ideally, one line on above the video. If it gets too long, it's difficult to read. Because what you've got to remember is, okay, often people will get notified when you go, go live. But most of the time, you're interrupting someone's scroll. So you've got to grab them really quick. Um, so, yeah, I did um, a couple of lives recently walking around showing a couple of my buildings that I'm developing and the lives went crazy because it's proof. And it's, yeah, people, people are nosy. Um, the head, but if someone goes live without a headline, no one will... No one will watch it. It's too risky because you don't know what's in it and you'll get your time wasted. You know, you said, sorry, just going back to in terms of be careful with your links away. But if you're offering them a PDF or something, that's going to take them out maybe to Kajabi, isn't it? That's a link away. Anything, anything, any hyperlink which goes off Facebook, you will get reduced reach. I mean, you've got to try and grow your emails. So, yeah. So you do you do it periodically um, because the more overall engagement you have, the more engagement that'll have. What about if you're doing a paid advert that's got that link out? I mean, okay. you're them money. We're gonna, you've got um, Facebook paid ad session later on. Oh, good. Yeah. Does it count if you put it in the comments rather than actually I think it's better if you put it in the comments. But I think if you put link in the comments, I'm, I'm 99% sure. I mean, Facebook fucking listened to you. <laughs> you know, you said something and then all of a sudden you said, I just fucking said that and now that's an ad. Oh, what? Yeah. What? No, I can't say that for sure, can I? But some people think that that's going on. But you know when you go on a website or you receive an email and all of a sudden you're fed that ad. So they're going to be able to pick up if you put link in comments or comment below. Anything anything that where you're trying to gain more engagement, they want meaningful engagement. They don't want gamified engagement. So you got your engagement needs to be meaningful. You've got to tell people to comment anyway or get them involved haven't you yeah get them involved ask them to engage in the debate and the discussion but if you just go i'll oh, comment below comment below comment below that's going to get picked up um but if you go hey what do you think about this what's your view and, and create a meaningful debate now by the way people love debating things on social media so 
all you're trying to do, well, no, not all, but what you want to try and do is create debate and discussion and get people involved in your content as opposed to it just be one way. But that would be good content anyway. Now, I'm going to raise one more point here before I finish this. And this is where I know I can help a lot of you step up, but you have to be a bit brave. The more divisive the debate, the better for engagement. But of course, what you worry about is people being critical, trolly, haty, disagree, disagreeing with you. Disagreement on your social media is really good for your engagement. It's not really bad. And the best posts are like the 50-50 divisive. So I think most of you are probably in the Disruptive Entrepreneur Facebook group. There's one post about Jeff Bezos, billionaire, and there's one post about Bill Gates. And they've both had four or 500 comments, which is probably 10 times the average number of comments because those two people are highly divisive. So actually, the more highly divisive your content is, the better. The challenge I have and you'll have, I don't like creating divisive content as a gimmick, i.e. just to get engagement. Now, a lot of people do. Hats off to them, fair play. You have bigger kahunas than me. But if I create something divisive, I want to be able to back up what I say. And if I'm tested on this, I want to be able to add to the debate. Otherwise, I'm going to feel like a bit of a fraud. So I've decided 99% of the time that I will only create divisive debate on something I really believe in or I feel I've got knowledge and experience in. If you create divisive, polarised debate all the time, you become Katie Hopkins or you just become someone who everyone goes, oh, they're just always kicking off, always creating a fight and argument and you lose your credibility in what you do. So you have to be fairly selective. But um, that my best guests by a mile on my podcast, and it doesn't matter what any of us think are our best guests. My four best guests, David Icke, Katie Hopkins, John McAfee, and Pablo Escobar's fake son. Or maybe real son, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But now these four people, by the way, are the most off concept of my brand. I've interviewed billionaires. People are like, oh, we're another fucking billionaire. But Pablo Escobar's parents are like, yeah, fucking yeah. And then they're like, oh, that was shit. He was shit. But they watched the whole fucking thing. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Um, by the way, did anyone watch Pablo Escobar's first Real Sons interview? Everyone loved it who watched it. But I'll tell you this, it'll get less views than his fake son. This is the society we live in. What was the one you did last week? I've only got a quarter of the way through it and got interrupted, so... I, really I have no fucking idea what I did last week. All right. Do you know what? I'm not saying he's fake. I just want to say that because it's not fully proven either way. I suppose until he takes a DNA test. Um, so last week was um, Sebastian. He's real. He's, he's 100% his son. And the one the week before was his, is he, isn't he, his son. So, um, Julie, you made a point about um, putting yourself out there. Um, if you, how can I go back and back and back and really get you to get this? If any one of you in this room or listening, if this all hasn't been edited out, um, aren't putting yourself out there enough and you know you should be putting yourself out there more, but you're not, and it's not a logistical reason why you can't, you're honest, it's something inside it probably boils down to one thing and that is the fear of being disliked or rejected or found out or exposed or criticized or a mistake shown that you did hence found out or that you're not legitimate or that you're not good enough and all of those peripheral things rejection not being good enough, being criticised, being found out, um, all linked back to um, probably not having enough volition of acceptance that people out there are going to not like you no matter what you do. Now, I'm going to part that for a second, come back to it. 
Because there are a few people who are like, I'm not going live because I'm just going through a divorce. You know, or I'm not going live because I've just come out of a really horrible relationship and I don't. So there are little um, extenuating situations where you can't go out bragging about how much money you made until the divorce is done, obviously. <laughs> you know, so there are a few little practical things that for now you probably just got to, and I accept those, but that is, like, that is one in a hundred people that I speak to. But it's not time. I'm sorry, it's not time. Now, you could think it's not, it's not worth my time. I've got better things to do with my time. Fair enough, if that's the reality. But if that's the excuse, when you go back through the layers, it is you have got to have the courage to be disliked, ridiculed, rejected, abused, trolled. Now, I'm in a room full of people who... You, we have a laugh about the shit people say about me. And, you know, you find it relatively funny and amusing. And I think because you know it doesn't really bother me, it makes you feel comfortable. But no one, no one is exempt of being criticised. Nothing that you put out there is exempt for being criticised. So the sooner you accept and deal with as a commercial reality of business that you will be criticised, you will be trolled, you will be hated, you will have bullshit and nonsense and defamation and libel and lies and manipulation and people trying to nick your clients and all of the things that you could list that could happen to you. When you've been in business long enough, that would have all happened to you. Now, I, I think I know where a lot of this comes from. And I'm going to open a few threads and I'm going to close them all up. So, you know, when people set a goal, here's what they do and they don't realise it. They set a fantasy. No one, when they set goals, goes, in my new goal, I'm going to get more critics, more trolls, more haters. There's going to be more sweat, more blood. All they do is go, I'm going to have 15 houses and be a millionaire. So they immediately set themselves up for fail by setting a goal with a one-sided fantasy. Tim, um, Tim Ferriss, on a podcast episode, he, he calls it fear setting. And what he does is he sets what could go wrong. Now, that's also one-sided. But when you do goal setting, you need to do fear setting. And when you do fear setting, or you go, in my new pursuit of being an, an influencer and getting all these upsides, because I have to be honest with you, and I'm being honest with myself saying it, you are naive if you think you can have all the upsides and none of the downsides. That is not how it works. There's a cost to everything you do. Now, the cost to playing small, no money, no recognition, no impact, no influence, a feeling of low self-worth, always looking at other people thinking, oh, they've done better. You know, that, that's all the cost of not doing it. But there's an equal opposite cost of putting yourself out there. And that's what 90%, I think, of people who fear putting themselves out there, I think that's what it boils down to. And I think that's why a lot of people like following me, because they can see it doesn't really bother me and they can see I'll have a bit of banter. And if someone calls me a bitch licker, I'll be like, yeah, bring it on. I'd actually quite like to do that. I don't know what it is, but I'd give it a fucking go. Probably wouldn't give Dick Riding a go because I'm apparently one of them. But it sounds interesting. Ah, fuck it. Yeah, you know, I've got a gun holster, a backpack. Yeah, I'm... Gobby, loudmouth. Yeah, there's Rob Moore Penis Twitter account out there, which has got more followers than some influencers. Boom. And all this shit they say, you know, they call me a see, they call me a see you next Tuesday every five minutes. So what? So what? It's funny. What I've enjoyed being called a see you next Tuesday. <laughs> Took a lot of therapy. Yeah. 15 years ago, you wouldn't have been that embracing of it. No, because I didn't know the commercial reality of business. And, um, I suppose there's one or two ways you can do this. You can either put yourself out there and get the experience and take the knocks. And what the, the knocks do is they strengthen you, you know, like a muscle strengthens when you tear it. Um, and, you know, scar tissue strengthens as you get a, um, an injury. Um, a scab forms over a wound. So what I found, by the way, I just want to let you know this because it's really important. I am not immune to criticism and there are still things that hurt. 
they're just way bigger and way more serious now. Like if Arnold Schwarzenegger went on alive and out of me, that would hurt because I really admire him. But if, if a load of twatty twats who are just twatting around online, who criticise everyone else, troll me, I, I just, well, well, if they're not trolling me, I'm not fucking big enough. I want to be in the conversation. You know when there's all these videos outing all these gurus? I want to be in the video because if I'm not in the video, I'm not big enough. I want to be in the video with Grant Cardone and Gary Vee because I want to be as big as them. So if I'm not in the video, I'm missing out. Trolls need to up their game. Haters need to hate more. Come on. What was your question? <laughs> How long does it take before you became so arrogant? <laughs> oh, oh, I'm editing this out. Ooh, no. By the way, this is not, I know you were being flippant. This is not arrogance. This is defiance. Um, how long did it take? It's a progressive thing. How long does it take to be an expert? You, you're learning your whole life. Anyone seen um, that Dreams of Sushi documentary? You have to make the rice for 10 years before you get to cut the fish. I know. You have to, you have to make little rectangles of rice for 10 years before you can cut the fish. <laughs> no, me neither. Fuck that. I want the baby, not the labour pains. Give me the fish. Um, so it's... It's an ever-moving... I didn't wake up one day and go, oh, wow, I can take online criticism. It's just when I got it and it hurt me and I found a way to deal with it, that thing that hurt me didn't hurt me anymore. So they could set up 100 accounts about my penis and it won't hurt me anymore. But when, when they did it, I was like, well, I don't really know what I thought, to be honest. I just use it for marketing now. <laughs> um, I think the things that hurt me the most are when I've done something really good for someone. I got a lot of um, hate for raising £17,000 for my sister to have her kidney out, um, which seemed really wrong. And one thing one person posted did bother me. Um, when people um, hurt people I really care about, that bothers me. And when people have a go at my business and, and they are defamatory and there's commercial cost to my business when it's not true I would say those three things really get me um but here's the thing uh, by the way I could talk for this on this subject for hours because it's really important there's a massive difference between a critic a troll a hater and a wanker a critic is someone who whilst they're not maybe very um balanced in the way they converse they have useful feedback you should listen to and there's so many people out there going, hater, hater, fuck no haters, fuck the haters. It's not a hater, it's a critic who's got useful feedback. And actually, you've just turned them against you. And I would say at least half of the criticism you get, it's not hate. It's critic. Just like someone who reviews a film. And actually, you should embrace those. And you, could, you learn way more from them than you do from your fans. Because they point out things. So every time there's a lesson hidden in hate. There's always a lesson. A troll is, trolling is illegal. A troll is a fake profile set up to, you know, cause you harm or damage. Always report trolls. That is illegal. I mean, trolling has forced people into suicide. So a lot of people call haters or critics trolls. That's not what a troll is. A troll is someone pretending to be someone else hiding their identity and then causing people harm and damage. A hater is someone who's already decided about you without knowing you that they want to give you a load of shit online um, and they probably do it to everyone else and they probably haven't been laid since 1985. Yeah, you writing that down. <laughs> Usually haters hate themselves. Usually haters are hurt. Usually haters failed and they don't like to see you succeed. With critics, I embrace them. Always. With trolls, I block them and I report them. With haters, I unfriend them and block them. Because with a hater, a critic, you can have a balanced debate with. Uh, you won't necessarily win and you may have to let them win, but you can have a balanced debate. But have you heard the saying, which I just think is one of the best sayings, never wrestle with a pig in shit. You both get covered in shit, but the pig loves it. <laughs> and this is what a hater is. And you can prove them wrong a million which ways, but they will still wriggle and slip into something else. So the only time I respond to a hater 
is the reason I'm responding is to put them right for everyone else's benefit. So let's say we have a hater here and, and they're hating on me because they're not trolling me because they're a real profile. Um, but there's defamation, there's lies, there's innuendo because I get this all the time. Um, I'm not replying to them for them because I don't give a fuck about them. I'm replying to them so you can all see how I handle this. And by the way, when you're respectful and you don't react emotionally and you don't buy and you put facts, what does everyone else think? Oh, wow, you handle that really well. Because in the early days of dealing with critics, trolls, haters and wankers, I used to be really emotional and going really strong and trying to disprove them and everything else. But I'm playing into their game. And then people can see that actually, oh, you know, Rob gets sucked in quite easily. So then they suck you in more. And your customers go, wow, Rob's a bit ranty. Hmm, I'll just keep my distance from him. But if they go, blimey, that was unfair what was said. And Rob handled it really respectfully. And, you know, just, um, han- just handled it really well. P- everyone else goes, ah. Oh. A professional critic is supposed to be that, like a film critic. Um, but a critic is someone who's giving you critical feedback, things you can improve on. Um, now, sometimes you've got sort of a, a critic come hater that's right on the line and it's difficult to see which one it is. Um, but I've turned many critics into fans and people turn many critics into haters by dismissing them. Um, now, here's the thing with a critic, and you have to get used to this. People do not communicate with you how you want them to communicate with you. They communicate with you how they want to communicate. Because sometimes I think, why couldn't you have just been nice? Why couldn't you have just said this in a different way? Why couldn't you have just called me up? Why did you have to put it? Why couldn't you have? As soon as you say, why couldn't you have? That they will be themselves. So you've got, so you've got, sorry, Jack, you've got to look through not how they say it, but what they say. Jane. Do you think people behave differently online? Yeah. Because I, I think when you meet people face to face, there's often a lot more um, sort of civility. But people, I've just seen people just be completely different and really surprise me by the way that they are online. Yeah. And I think, I think, God, I can't believe how how rude you are. And I guess it's just all part of the territory, isn't it? Yeah. Let me find a quote for you. Um, So my answer is yes, 100%. So this is a quote from Mike Tyson. Social media made y'all way too comfortable with disrespecting people and not getting punched in the face for it. (laughs) 